an idea. What if, when you came through the door in in the, the sanctuary here, what if you asked the question, how can I show other people that they are welcome here? And I'm not just talking about shaking their hand. I'm talking about the space that we're in and how we occupy it. It, it, would it change how we sit in our pews, right? I, I am guilty of having stretched across a pew and napped in my lifetime. How many of you have done this? Yes? It is not a sin for a child to have napped in church, having stretched across the pew. I just want to say that from the pulpit, it, has, it is not a sin. But if we have a full house... Um, is it a good idea to stretch across a pew and one person take up four seats? Probably not. <laughs> um, again, not, not a sin, but, but let's just think, how would we change how we relate to our space if our mindset was, let's make sure people walking through our door feel welcomed? Would we uh, maybe scoot a little bit farther forward? Um, we tend to fill up the back before we fill up the front, right? Um, would we sit in the middle to allow space at the edges for people to come in? Um, I'm not saying that anybody here has done anything wrong today. Please don't get me wrong. I, I'm simply asking us to have the thought in our head as we walk into our church, how can I show people that they are welcome here? Is that fair? All right. I'm done. My conversation's over. <laughs> we can get to the, to the word from the, from the moment we wake up in the, in the morning till the time that our head hits the pillow at night, we are making decisions. We're dealing with all kinds of problems and challenges and questions throughout our day, one thing after another. We have the choice to lie or tell the truth. We have the choice to be cruel or kind. We have the choice to seek vengeance or to offer forgiveness. Uh, we have the choice to do the popular thing or the right thing. We have the choice to ignore God or to acknowledge him. Our choices determine the person that we are and the person that we will become. And I'd like to suggest that the most important choice that you will ever make is the choice we're going to make here today as we examine the story of really the most consequential choice that any human has ever made. Let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we are, we're in need of your Holy Spirit to understand your word, and more importantly, to apply it to our hearts. Nothing I can say is going to convict anybody's heart, but I know your Holy Spirit has that job of convicting us. And so I pray you'd speak through me and that your Holy Spirit would be present with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we've been studying the first chapters of Genesis, and the first thing that we looked at was the creation of Adam, and then we looked at the, the marriage, um, sacred union, and, and everything so far has been perfect. It's been good, very good. And uh, Adam and Eve, they're created with this innocence, this, uh, the, this purity, but they weren't beyond the possibility of doing wrong. Adam and Eve were created with the ability to choose. Um, in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White says that they were free moral agents, capable of appreciating the wisdom and goodness of God's character and the justice of his requirements, and with the full liberty to yield or to withhold obedience. That, that's Adam and Eve's experience. 
God could have made mankind like monkeys or cats or cows, with, but um, he, he chose to give us a moral conscience and the capacity to know right from wrong. Cats, not so much. Um, he could have made us like elephants without the ability to contemplate justice or honesty or goodness and peace. Or he could have made us like a bear that hibernates or a butterfly that, that migrates. He could have made us like anything. But what he did is he created us like him with the ability to know right from wrong and to make moral decisions. He chose to make man in his image with the ability to love him and be loved by him. I think I'm pretty glad I'm not a cat or an elephant or a butterfly. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God creates them with a knowledge of right and wrong or the ability to know right from wrong. And then he defines good for them. He says, This is good. And this other thing is bad. A Bible scholar named Arthur Furch said, "Um, I think I I got something wrong. Well, anyway, (laughs) the guidelines given by their divine father were few, succinct, and clear. The command, as every other divine instruction, arose from love, and through it one could hear the love of the speaker. Like a caring parent, the Lord wanted his children to enjoy happiness life and joy, but he left the choice between life and death to them. Sarah Groves sings this song, and it's a a beautiful song about choice called Generations. And she says, I can taste the fruit of Eve. I'm aware of sickness, death, and disease. The results of her choices are vast. Eve was the first, but she wasn't the last. And if I were honest with myself, had I been standing at that tree My mouth and my hands would be covered with fruit, things I shouldn't know and things I shouldn't see. Remind me of this. With every decision, generations will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. You see, the consequences of Adam and Eve's decisions weren't just their own. They were going to impact the entire world. Big decisions were in little choices. And if only Eve had known that that was going to be the case, right? But she did know. She knew all the story behind the, the rebellion of Lucifer in heaven and um, the fall. Uh, she knew about his lust to ruin their lives. She knew that he was going to be there in this tree. It wasn't uh, out of ignorance here. But now she's standing at that base of the tree and she's looking up and she sees this beautiful dragon I mean, the Bible says that, that he was, the, the serpent was cursed to crawl on the ground, which suggests that he wasn't crawling until then. So I'm just going to call it a dragon. We'll say it even has wings. Beautiful dragon, uh, nimbly moving around in this big, big, beautiful, huge tree. And it says the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to be sitting in Genesis 3. So turn there in your Bibles. Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He's more crafty. And he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In in saying this, the serpent misrepresents God's um, statements. He distorts his instructions. A guy named Derek 
uh, Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says that, that he smuggled in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. Did God really say, let's talk about this? Did God really say that? And even if that's what God said, uh, don't you know you can't take those words literally? And we all have our own interpretations of what he really meant by what he said. You have your idea, I have mine. The serpent tempted Eve to doubt God. He tempted Eve to doubt his word. And you face that challenge, right? Co-workers, family members, um, classmates, sophisticated people suggest that, that you can't really trust what God says. But don't be deterred. Don't stop your pursuit of God's word. Obey him. Follow his word. It is a lamp that guides and protects. Know it by studying. Know it by experiencing. His commands produce goodness in our lives. His instructions are joy. And look at the the serpent's words again. Eve is tempted to doubt God's word. And she's also tempted to be dissatisfied with God's will. He, He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, Eve, he might have said that, sure, but does he really mean it? I mean, if he's good, wouldn't he want everything to be good for you? Surely, if you want something, it can't be bad. I can't believe he'd say no to you, Eve, to doubt God's will and to to be dissatisfied with his will. And, And Satan focused Eve's attention on the one thing God said no to, You see how he he likes to do that. There is so much in this world that's good. But we get tripped up with the the bad stuff, which in the Garden of Eden was just this small section of the garden, this one tree. Don't touch that. But she's dissatisfied. I have to have that thing too. Have you become dissatisfied with God's will for your life? Is it because it somehow comes in the way of something that you feel that you want or need You have to have. Is the enemy tempting you to believe that you can only really be happy if you have that one thing that God said no to? The serpent made God look harsh and unfair, like he was withholding something that was good. And Eve, she began to be confused and to to step into that dissatisfaction. And she replies, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Notice a couple things about her statement. She says, she adds to God's severity by by saying, oh, he doesn't even want us to touch the stuff or we're going to die. And uh, Arthur Furch in the book, In the Beginning, it says that when you look at the Hebrew, the, the original language here, that it, it's not only that she adds to God's severity, but she removes some of the intensity of the consequence. In the original Hebrew, Eve's reply to the serpent seems to indicate that she had modified God's threat. Instead of repeating the certainty with which God had stated the death penalty, her response implied that death was merely a possible event. She did not take God seriously, and by reflecting the doubt and hesitancy of the serpent, Eve played into Satan's hand. And Satan responds with a flat contradiction in verse 4. You will not die. And that's one of the 
lies that has been perpetuated in every religion throughout all time ever since. You won't die. There's not going to be that severity of a consequence. And we can see that through reincarnation, right? Um, and, and through all kinds of interesting religions out there that have ideas of how spirits, uh, when you die, you end up in a rock or a tree or frog or whatever, um, animism, that's that. There's all kinds of ways that we interpret this. You will not die. Um, Eve became dissatisfied with God's, um, with God's will, and the serpent focused her attention on that one thing beyond the boundary line, and then Eve intensified the temptation by tolerating it. She allowed it to continue and explored it and talked through it and, and debated a little bit here. What did Joseph do when he was faced with temptation in Potiphar's house? He ran. He left his coat there. He ran so quick. He wasn't going to turn around to, to deal with this. He was gone. And, and the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.2, he says that when we face temptation, what should we do? We should run. We should get away from it. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we should talk, stop and talk with our tempter. That we should debate with our doubts and our fears and our dissatisfaction. Imagine what would have happened if Eve, standing there at the foot of the tree, seeing this beautiful snake, had uh, heard these doubts about God and then gone, eh, interesting question, and ran away and found God and said, God, there's somebody in the garden that, that doubts you and, and he's saying that you're a liar. Can, I, I don't think I know how to handle this. Can you help me? And then what if she came back with God to that tree? What would have been different about this story if she had gone to God with her doubts and dissatisfaction and her fears and her worries and whatever else was that was in her heart? But instead, she tolerated it and she allowed it to hang on and she toyed with it. And because Eve did not bring God back, the doubts that she was confronted with about God's word and the dissatisfaction with God's will led to a denial of God's goodness. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist, defines sin as our effort to supplement what we think are limits to God's goodness. It's trusting ourselves instead of trusting God. Who is allowed to define what's good and bad in our lives? Do we allow the authorities in our lives to define good and bad, right and wrong? Or are we in charge of that? I, I got to hang out with the Cornerstone Christian School on Thursday morning and do worship with them. And I asked them this question, who gets to define good and bad? Does your teacher, does your mom and dad, does God, or do you? And every time that we violate one of those rules and we're saying, I don't trust you to define good for me. And that's really the definition of sin, isn't it? I fail to trust the one who's in responsibility over me. I don't think they've got my best good in mind. And their definition of good, their rules, are, are wrong. They don't work for me. And so I'm going to define it for myself. I'm going to do life and, and, and figure out what's going to be good for me without you. That's sin. That's the basic of, of any sin. It starts right there. I don't trust God. And that, that's essentially what happened to Eve. Satan tempted her to think that God was holding out on her. 
that in refusing her access to this tree, he was withholding something good for her. And in fact, it was precisely because it was good for her that he was withholding it. And she began to doubt uh, not just his goodness, but his intentions for her. He says in Genesis 3, 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're going to be like God. God is mean. He doesn't want you to enjoy life to the fullest. God's protecting himself because he knows that if you eat this fruit, then you're going to know something that he doesn't want you to know. You might be his equal even. Are you tempted to think that God is not completely, absolutely, unconditionally good? Do you face problems in life and, and, and point to God and say, you did me wrong? And... Uh, Maybe think that God, I mean, if you really want to enjoy life and have good things in life, that you really need to step away from God's limiting, restrictive rules. Do you ever think that? In Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White says, Satan insinuated that the Lord jealously desired to withhold the forbidden fruit from them, lest they should be exalted to equality with himself. It was because of this wonderful, uh, its wonderful properties, imparting wisdom and power, that he had prohibited them from tasting or even touching it. The tempter intimated that the divine warning was not to be actually fulfilled. It was designed merely to intimidate them. How could it be possible for them to die had they not eaten from the tree of life? God had been uh, seeking to prevent them from reaching a nobler development and finding greater happiness. You see the... The way that we begin to justify stepping away from God's boundaries. And ever since that moment, men and women have been tempted to believe that freedom from God and his will will bring true liberty and expansive knowledge. It's religion that hinders science. It's religion that hinders development. It's religion that keeps us from experiencing pleasure and joy, right? prudish and uh, all these other words that we think about. But is that really what the problem is? No. Uh, God is appealing to us to put aside our suspicion and to, to trust that he is good, that he actually wants our best. And, and he, he sets boundaries because they're good for us. What temptation are you tolerating? What temptation are you toying with? thinking about, mulling over, considering. I know someone who died years before she should have. She was a hardworking, caring mother and a good woman. But she tolerated and touched and toyed with something that got her by the throat and strangled the life from her. She died probably 20 years before she would have otherwise. And some of you are playing with it too. Alcohol wine, beer. You think it's harmless pleasure, a tasty condiment, an evening relaxer, something uh, good to go with a nice meal, a social lubricant. Uh, But the Bible says, in the end, it bites like a serpent, it stings like an adder. What are you tolerating? Maybe it's not alcohol, maybe it's something else, but we we allow it to, 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 to be in our lives. We toy with it, we experiment with it, we play around with it, we tolerate it. And, and in the end, it stings and bites like that serpent did in the garden. The result of going outside of God's path always hurts us. 
And this is the, the formula in Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. The formula for sin works a lot like this. She sees it and she says, oh, it's good for food. It's not poisonous. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Oh, it looks really good, tasty. I'd, I, her mouth begins to water. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You can find this in First uh, John 2.16. I didn't put it up there, but she sees the fruit, the lust of the flesh. First John 2.16 talks about these three things that are the components of sin. She, she's pleased with this fruit. It's pleasing to the eyes, and you have the lust of the eyes. And then she says it's desirable to gain wisdom. You have the pride of life. These three things, the components of sin. And so she took some of it, she ate it, she gave it to her husband, and he ate it too. This is probably one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. Derek Kidner said it memorably. Eve, listened to a creature instead of the creator. Followed her impressions against her instructions and made self-fulfillment her goal. And ever since Eve's fateful decision to leave the goodness, blessing, and security, and fullness that God was offering, men and women have been inclined to believe the same thing, that, uh, that freedom from God and independence from his will will bring them liberty and open the path to this knowledge that they would not have otherwise had. And it's, it's a lie that has infected uh, the world um, more significantly and more universally than Omicron has. <laughs> All right, it's not, it's not a virus that that's a, a few people are going to get. Every single one of us has it. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, but God didn't abandon Adam and Eve when they did this. He could have left them, but that's not what God is like. Contrary to their doubts and their, th- their fears, the first recorded words to Adam and Eve after the fall were... <clears throat> When God said, where are you? Where are you? It's, it's a question. Uh, God obviously knew where they were. <clears throat> he's not calling out for information. What he's, what he's doing is he's seeking reconciliation. He wants them back. Where, where'd you go? Where are you? Is God calling to you? Where are you? I missed you for prayer this morning. Where are you? You read your Bible, but with such an absent mind, where are you? Adam replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. (laughs) It's the first mention of fear in the Bible. And and Adam and, and Eve weren't afraid because they were embarrassed. I mean, yeah, that's what they saw, the outward thing. They, they noticed that they were naked and they were embarrassed, but, but they were afraid. The origin of that fear came because they, the disobedience and distrust of God had broken their relationship. They were afraid of God. And ever since Adam and Eve hid, you and I do the same thing. Distrust and disobedience lead to broken relationship, not just with God, but with each other. And so we hide from each other and we hide in shame. And so God, knowing that it's not just that they're naked, that there's a problem, he turns their focus to the root problem in verse 11. He says, 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Did you stop trusting and obeying me? Is that what really happened? And before confessing, before saying, yeah, God, I I did that, Adam points a finger at his wife and says, that woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And of course, Eve does the same thing, points to this serpent and says, that serpent that you made, he beguiled me, he, he tricked me and I ate it. And if I'm honest with you, I have to admit that I do the same thing. When I'm faced with my guilt, I point the finger at circumstances. I point the finger at other people. Uh, My kids, my wife, my work, the stressors. Something is a problem other than me. Thank you. The Genesis account of the fall, it's all throughout Scripture. The shadow of that choice is everywhere. The whole Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament tells about man's bondage to sin. And it's something that you and I face. It's something that we face every single day. But the New Testament unmasks this figure, Satan, who's behind the serpent in the tree and makes it clear how the victory is going to happen. And it celebrates this good news, the gospel. You can read about it in Revelation twelve nine. He says that there's this great dragon that was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That great dragon that deceives the whole world. And then in verse 10, the response, this, this uh, heavenly outcry says, now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been cast down, thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How did this happen? How is this accuser of the brethren, this serpent, thrown down? In the councils of heaven, there was a plan devised before sin ever happened. And... It was a plan that would save us and at the same time exonerate God's justice and goodness. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, committed to giving his own life for ours. In Hebrews 2.12, we read that he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Sorry, I was behind a little bit on that one. <clears throat> and, and this is the victory that was anticipated when God sentenced the serpent in the garden. He, he looks at the snake and he says, this is not going to last forever. I've got a plan. I made a plan already. And I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the woman, and between your children and her children. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to get a deadly wound by Jesus someday. And in the meantime, I'm going to put this enmity, this, this um, fight between you and the woman so that, that Adam and Eve's children will never fully embrace your evil. That they will have a desire for good innately built into them. That they know there's something wrong with the problems and the the issues that they face. And that enmity, that struggle that you and I face is described in Romans chapter 7 by Paul. 
when he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, warring, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And that sounds horrible. That sounds like a despairing thought, always at war. But there's, there's a conclusion that he has. He says that there's a, a solution in verses 24 and 25, just the next verse. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There it is. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The solution is Jesus. Satan in his temptation to Adam and Eve and his plan to defeat God's purpose completely failed. Not because Adam and Eve didn't choose to follow him. They did. They distrusted God. But because God stepped in. And Satan, in his selfishness and his focus on being the one that's preeminent, the, the, the one at the, at the top, he can't think of anybody who would be loving like God. And he didn't anticipate that God would do what he did. But that's who God is. He steps out from heaven in all of its glory and all of his power and he becomes flesh and blood like you and me and he gives his own life in exchange for ours and he gives his righteousness in exchange for ours and he gives his Holy Spirit and his angels to, to guide and protect and convict and draw and teach and, and make in us the love that he has. That's the love of God and Satan didn't imagine that he would do that. Adam and Eve had the right idea in covering themselves when they found themselves naked. And you and I tend to do the same thing as they did. We cover ourselves with excuses and, and with pointing the finger and blaming others and, and uh, with self-righteousness. And, and everything that we can do, the Bible says, even the best righteous-looking stuff that we can make ends up being filthy rags, just fig leaves at best. The only solution that we have is God's forgiveness provided through Jesus' blood. Adam and Eve had that first taste of that when Jesus came down and showed them what the sacrifice was like, pointed them to his sacrifice one day in the future, and then made robes out of the skins of the animals that they, they used for that first sacrifice. It was a picture of what God would do, the suffering that he would take on our behalf. And, and today we're going to participate in that symbol. We don't offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus already came. One sacrifice, once for all. But we do look back at his sacrifice, the body and the blood of Christ that was poured out for us and sacrificed on our behalf. So in a few minutes, we're going to do a communion service. But in the, before we do that, uh, I'm going to ask you to, to do a service that, um, well, Jesus demonstrated with the disciples.